Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, hey, thanks, Brent. Great to see all of you here this morning. Good morning, guys. How are you doing this morning? Good. Welcome to the fifth Sunday of July. I don't know if you realize this, but we had five Fridays this month. We had five Saturdays, and we've had five Sundays in the month of July. It's kind of a rare occurrence. Uh, how many of you read on the internet that that only occurs in the month of July like once every 892 years or something like that? Did you read that somewhere? Did you read that on the internet? Yeah, it's a great example of why you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet. It actually happens once every about six years or so, uh, which is considerably less than once a millennium. As uh, <laughs> I mean, just do the math. I mean, you can look it up. But anyway, uh, but still kind of rare, more rare than like a leap year kind of thing. So it's a little bit of a special Sunday this morning. Uh, but even more important than the fact that this is the fifth Sunday of the month of July, this is, as Brent mentioned earlier, the last week that we're going to be in our summer series looking at the parables of Jesus. Uh, we're going to be talking this morning about uh, one of the parables that may seem to be a little bit more obscure. Maybe it's one that you're not as familiar with. Maybe you've never heard a sermon on this particular parable. It's often known as the parable of the tenants. And so we're going to talk through that here this morning. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the parables that we've gone through uh, throughout this series have been like some of the big well-known par- uh, parables. Like we could call these the hits. Like we've gone through the hits of Jesus, the greatest hits of Jesus in the parables list. We've talked about the parable of the prodigal sons. We've talked about the parable of the good Samaritan. We've talked about uh, the sower. We've talked about the lost coin and the lost sheep. Uh, so we've, we played the hits through this series, right? Uh, this is going to be kind of more of a deep track, if you will. This is like a side B, a B-side. But as, as some of those deep tracks can be, like sometimes deep tracks are just waiting to be found and then they become hits. They're just waiting to be discovered and then they become hits. Any Hall & Oates fans in here? You guys fan of Hall & Oates? Like Daryl Hall and then that guy Oates. I don't know what his first name is. I don't think anybody knows what his first It's John, I know, but because I'm a big Hall & Oates fan. But anyway, uh, one of their greatest songs, at least my favorite song, and one of the songs that helped launch their career was Sarah Smile. You guys know the song Sarah Smile? It was actually a B-side. Uh, a local radio station decided to play that song one day. And they played the B-side of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the song that came out, and, and that became one of their hits. And so in some ways, I think, I think this parable, the parable of the tenants, has the potential to hit in that same way. It has, it's often known as kind of the ones that's more obscure, maybe not as well known as the others, but believe me, it hits just as hard as many of the more well-known parables go. And so one of the things that it does, though, is that one of the things that I think is so great about it is it brings together really all of these threads of what Jesus has been teaching through all of the parables. It brings together all of the good news of the kingdom through these major threads and really actually even reaches back into the Old Testament to pull the Old Testament story into the new. And we're going to see when this happens and when it takes place and when Jesus teaches this parable. It makes sense that it is one of the, in my opinion, it's a perfect parable to end our series on. And so I'm excited to get started on it this morning. I hope you are as well. Again, I think it's the perfect way to close out our series, tying all of these ideas together that we've been talking about throughout the entire summer, really. Now, one of the things that you know, if you've been around here long enough, you know that we constantly talk about when it comes to reading the Bible is the importance of context. Context, context, context. We say context is king. We've talked about two really main aspects of context, that whenever we are reading the Bible, uh, it's important to consider where we're at in the biblical context, which means where we're reading in that particular place in Scripture, how does this fit into the overall story and narrative of God's Word? How does it connect to the places that come before it and the places that go after it in the Bible? How does it connect to the other places in the book that we're reading? Those kinds of things. That's biblical context. Asking where does that fall in the biblical story? The second one we talk about often is historical or situational context. In other words, when this was originally written or when, in this case, when Jesus was originally speaking these parables, who was he speaking to? What setting was going on around them? And who was the immediate audience? What was the immediate setting that he was teaching these parables to or, or, or into? 
right? And that's one thing we've talked about in this series as well is that many times when Jesus is teaching the parables, he is speaking directly to that immediate audience, not only in terms of their circumstance, but also having them see themselves as part of the parable that he's telling them. He's inviting them to consider themselves as one of the characters or one of the metaphors or one of the symbols that he tells. And so it's so critically important to understand the immediate context and the setting that Jesus is telling the parables in to understand what the meaning of the entire parable is as well. And so I'm reminding us of context this morning, of course, because getting to the meaning of this particular parable is really all about context. So I want to begin here. We find this parable in Matthew chapter 21. And you may know Matthew chapter 21. It's, it's one of the most well-known chapters in Matthew's gospel, but it's a chapter that's full of activity and symbolism. It begins the last week of Jesus' life, also the Passover week, also the Passover week in the city of Jerusalem at the time. And in this first chapter, Matthew gives us the first two days of that week and what happens there. And in what's going on in this chapter, there's all kinds of activity and teaching and things that Jesus is doing to communicate who he is as the Son of God, to communicate again the significance of the good news of the kingdom. And then also to draw a connection to the hope of the salvation that he's going to bring through the crucifixion that will, and the resurrection that will end the week. And as we see these first two days, these first two days are full of the kind of activity and symbolism that Jesus uses to confirm everything that he's been doing throughout his entire ministry. In other words, everything's beginning to get tied together. And it's in this chapter that we find this parable that we're going to be looking at today. In fact, this parable actually finishes Matthew chapter 21. So all that's built up here in Matthew chapter 21 leads into this parable, and it's pointing uh, to what Jesus is teaching here. So maybe the most significant thing that happens in Matthew chapter 21, if you have your Bibles open or you're familiar with the chapter, you may know that the subheading at the beginning of Matthew chapter 21 probably says the, tri uh, the triumphal entry, right? We know the triumphal entry as the event when Jesus rode on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem on the first day of the Passover. And this symbol itself is full of meaning. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are going on in this scene as Jesus rides a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. First of all, as he rides, this into the, uh, as he rides the donkey into the, to, uh, to Jerusalem on the first day of the Passover, he's literally engaging with this idea of anticipation. Because the Passover week itself was full of anticipation for the Jewish people. It was the most significant week of the Jewish calendar. It was the most significant religious festival that they had during the year where people from all over the area in the city of Jerusalem would come into the city and stay for the entire week. And of course, what they were celebrating was God's original deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt during the Exodus, the Passover event. But also, along with that event, was the anticipation that God would do this again. That God would bring deliverance again and he would bring it through a Messiah. And so as a part of the anticipation or the celebration of the, the Passover week, the people would often look forward to the promised Messiah who would come from the Old Testament. And Jesus fully understands this as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as he does, he, he presents himself as a victorious king riding into the capital city of Jerusalem. But he also fulfills an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah 9, which Matthew actually quotes here. Your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. Now the people knew this scripture. In fact, everyone in the city knew this scripture. This was one of those ones that they would repeat during the Passover week as a reminder of God's promise to us that he is bringing us a king who will deliver us. And so when Jesus gets a donkey... And he rides in on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. He is saying that he is God's king. He is the Messiah who has come. And that first action kicks off a week that will bring all that Jesus has taught about his kingdom, about himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, into full focus with not only the actions, but of course the parables that he teaches as well. And on the first day of the week, after Jesus rides into the city on the donkey, the first thing he does is go to the temple. And in the temple, he cleanses the temple. We see that famous scene where Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers and he drives them out of the temple, cleansing the temple, literally with a whip in hand, getting them out of the temple. And then after they're, done, after they're gone, he, he, he asserts his authority verbally over the house of God as a temple. 
And then he begins to perform miracles as a demonstration of his authority. Right there in the temple courts, he heals the blind and the lame as they come to him, making the statement that I have the authority of God. This temple is, uh, he's demonstrating his authority over the temple. I am God's anointed, God's, God's Messiah. The only one who can do this is the Son of God. That's how the first day ends. And then the second day, not only has Jesus already gotten all the attention of the crowds of people gathered, but he's definitely gotten the attention of the religious leaders. And so when he comes into the city the second day, he goes right back to the temple, and he begins to confront the religious leaders with his teaching. Now, hugely significant, because again, this is the most important week, uh, festival week, religious festival week of the year. And so for Jesus to set up camp in the temple, in the place where the religious leaders should be teaching the people, and to confront the religious leaders with his teaching was a hugely scandalous thing, and the religious leaders recognized it. And it was something that, that, that kind of arose their anger, arose their irritation, their frustration with Jesus. If they felt to this point that Jesus was a nuisance or an irritant, at this point what's happening is they're starting to get angry, realizing that Jesus is encroaching on their turf, directly confronting their authority. And it's into that environment that Jesus tells two parables. He tells a parable that comes before the one we're going to talk about today, which essentially at the end of it, he gets to the end of the parable, it's directed at the Pharisees, and he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God ahead of you guys. And if that weren't bad enough, this second parable takes it to a whole different level. And again, Jesus is fully aware of what is going on, where the religious leaders are, how they're reacting, and the disciples are probably beginning to sense it a little bit too. In fact, I think if you were to ask them, they'd probably want Jesus to back off a little bit because this is starting to get really intense and threatening. But it's into that the anger, the seething rage that's kind of under the surface with the religious leaders in front of a public group of people, hundreds of people. Remember, Jesus is about as popular as he could possibly be at this point. He's come in the day before. He's, he's presented himself as the Messiah who's going to come deliver Israel, something that people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. Yes, this is our Messiah. Then he begins to heal the blind and the lame. He's confronting those religious leaders who were often so oppressive towards the everyday person, and the crowds are celebrating Jesus. They're in love with him. They're hanging on his every word. And it's in this public environment that he confronts the Pharisees with this parable. And we see it in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. And Jesus says this, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season for fruit draw near, drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So that's the end of the parable. And then Jesus turns in verse 40 and asks the Pharisees this following question in verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, the ones who have killed and beaten his servants and the one who has now killed his heir, his son? And the Religious leaders responded by saying this, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to him, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our own eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, if there's any lingering kind of frustration or just anger about the religious leaders regarding Jesus' claims, after this parable, it's clear that this anger has turned into something more than just 
mere anger. It's gone to a seething, murderous rage. By the time he realizes that, by the time they realize that Jesus is talking to them, confronting them in this place at this time in front of this audience, they decide from this point forward, this man not only has to be silenced, he has to be arrested, he's speaking blasphemy, and he needs to be put to death. So let's talk about this parable and exactly what Jesus is saying, exactly what gets them so upset. In some ways, this parable just presents a really kind of average, straightforward, normal situation. Jesus talks about, first, a wealthy landowner who decides to buy a piece of land, and this land is essentially an investment property. And on that investment property, the landowner plants a crop, as many people, as many wealthy landowners did at the time. He plants a crop, and in this case, it's a vineyard. But he lives in a different country, and so he needs tenants to kind of come in and to man that and to to, to work the fields and to make sure that the vineyard vineyard grows the fruit that it's supposed to grow. And so in situations like this, a wealthy landowner would give the land over to tenants who could stay there on the land rent-free as long as they worked the land and then brought in the harvest the way that they were supposed to be. And this was set up typically by a formalized contract or a covenant where the landowner had his agreement to make sure that he allowed the tenants to stay there, and then the tenants would make sure that they did the work of the land to make sure that the vineyard, in this case, produced its fruit. And once the harvest time came, the tenants would give their part, or the the landowner's part of the harvest to the landowner, and the landowner might allow the tenants to keep a little bit for themselves as a part of the agreement as well. Now, it's a great setup, probably for both sides. If it's done well, it's mutually beneficial. But in this case things get a little bit shockingly twisted. Things are going well until harvest time comes, and the landowner sends his servants to go ahead and collect his part of the harvest, the part that he's due from the tenants. And instead of the tenants giving over what is due to the landowner, they kill and beat the servants that come. So the landowner says to himself, okay, maybe there was a misunderstanding. Let's send another batch of servants over there to see if they can be better at getting, if they can have more success. They go over there, and the same thing happens to them. So the landowner thinks to himself, okay, this time I've got to use a little bit more of a firmer hand. So I'm going to send my son. My son, who is the heir, he represents ownership. He is basically the proxy owner in my place. There's no way they're going to disrespect my son. They'll give him what we are due. And so the son shows up, and probably the most shocking part of this parable, of course, is that the tenants do the exact same thing to the son that they did to the servants. They put him to death. And so that's how the parable ends, and then Jesus turns to the religious leaders, and he says, what should the landowner do in that situation? Well, everybody in the crowd knew what the answer was, because according to a covenant, a contract like that, it would have spelled out that if they were to do something like that to even his servants, much less his son, then the landowner owed them not only to be thrown out of the land, but he was well within his rights under the law to put those tenants to death for what they had done. And so they say two things. Well, first of all, he should put those tenants to death. And secondly, he should bring in new tenants to tend his land. And Jesus essentially says, you've answered correctly. And I think at this point, obviously, the religious leaders don't understand exactly where Jesus is leading them. Well, they will in just a couple of short minutes. Because Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118 about the builders rejecting the cornerstone. Of course, a scripture that the religious leaders would have been very familiar with but probably had never really applied it in this way. And what Jesus is saying to them is, I am the cornerstone, I am the capstone, and you are the builders who have rejected what God is trying to do with his kingdom. What he's been trying to do from the very beginning, it all comes down to me, and I'm here, I'm the cornerstone, the capstone of God's purposes, and you've completely rejected me. Now, the capstone or the cornerstone, if you're not familiar, was a, if you're not familiar with what that is, was a very important piece of carpentry and construction at the time. Cornerstone would either fit at the top of the corner of two walls, which would hold two walls together, which was essential for building a structure, obviously, or a capstone was typically that triangular piece that would be in the middle of an arch that would hold an arch together. And so obviously without a capstone, the arch falls apart. Without a cornerstone, you can't put walls up that are gonna hold together, and without walls, you can't build a building. And so of course the point is taken, When the builders reject the capstone or the cornerstone, what's the point of even building in the first place? It's all worthless. And in another master stroke of parable telling, Jesus takes this very regular everyday situation, 
puts his own spin on it, and actually tells the entire story of Israel with God, going all the way back into the Old Testament. Because, of course, the landowner represents God in this case. The vineyard represents, really, the land, the blessing, the kingdom that God gives to Israel all the way back in the Old Testament and says, you're going to be my people who dwell in this land. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing to the nations who are around you. You're going to be ones who recognize me as king and who serve me as king in such a way where the rest of the nations see the fruit that grows among you and it will attract them to the God of Israel and it will bring them into the God of Israel. The tenants, of course, were the Israelites, more directly the Israelite leaders like the kings and the priests, the religious leaders, the Pharisees that are standing right there in front of Jesus. And the vineyard is supposed to produce fruit, which is the evidence of God's presence among the God of Israel, among, among Israel as the God of Israel. Now, if you know Old Testament history, if you know anything of the Old Testament, you know, of course, this, almost, almost the opposite happens throughout their history. The covenant, by the way, that joins the tenant and the landowner together is the Mosaic Covenant, which spells out the way that they're supposed to live in the land. But over and over again, this plays out. So instead of Israel, right, being an influence and an impact to the nations and a blessing to the nations around them, the nations instead influence and impact Israel so that it's not long before idolatry and foreign gods are brought into Israel and they're worshiping literally foreign gods in the temple of God alongside God himself, the one true God himself. And so it's a complete breaking of the covenant that God has arranged, the landowner had arranged with the tenants. And so what does the landowner do? He sends his servants, his prophets, guys like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Amos, all the rest, as servants to remind the tenants of their covenant obligations. Remember, this is the agreement that you have with the landowner. And just like the servants in the parable who were beaten and killed and rejected, Israel rejected God's prophets as well throughout the Old Testament. And of course, you get to this place where the last thing that happens is the Son is sent. The Son, of course, representing Jesus. And as Jesus arrives, he predicts, by the end of this parable, his own death. By saying, not only did you reject the servants and the prophets that came before me, but you will also, in the end, put the Son of the landowner to death. Now, if they didn't know it before, If the religious leaders didn't know it before, Jesus is saying in a public setting for everyone to hear, on temple grounds, under the authority of God, that the Jewish religious leaders are the wicked tenants who steal from God and then murder God's prophets and God's son. And on top of that, he's gotten them actually to pronounce their own judgment, right? He's asked them, what should happen in this case? If you were the landowner, what would you do? And they actually pronounce their own judgment. Well, if I was a landowner, I'd kill those wicked tenants and bring in new tenants. And Jesus says, that's exactly what's happening. The kingdom of God is being taken from you and given to the new tenants who will come in. And as Jesus spells this out and he says all that stuff about the cornerstone, what he's telling us is that God is building a new kingdom with new tenants according to the cornerstone who is Christ. And those who are found outside of this will be not only will the cornerstone be the building block of their faith, the cornerstone will actually crush them in the end. Now, it's at this point then that they realize that Jesus has said this, of course, all about them. Basically, the worst possible things that can be said about the religious leaders at the worst possible time, the Passover week, and the worst possible place in the temple in front of the worst possible people, the crowds of people who the religious leaders are supposed to be leading into worship in the temple. I mean, the way that this all comes together is pretty amazing. It's adding fuel to the fire. And in all of this, Jesus is still offering an invitation to the religious leaders to repent. Look, the reality is this is God speaking to you again through his son. Will you listen this time? Will you respond this time? And instead of responding for whatever reason, their self-righteousness, their anger, their pride, they fail to receive Jesus as who he says he is. And so they go from annoyance maybe to about, in about five to ten minutes of Jesus telling this parable to full-bodied 
murderous rage. And instead of repenting and recognizing where they're at with God and God's purposes and plans, the religious leaders step right into the parable and become that exact role that Jesus talked about there. And they begin to plot to put the son of the landowner to death. A plot that they'll put into play and will be accomplished by the end of that week, three short days later. Now, as we get to the end of this, of course, there are a lot of warnings for us to consider. It's obvious that this is a parable that's primarily focused on judgment, in particular the judgment of evil. It's, it's a parable that's focused on the idea of the fact that God will bring judgment and there is accountability. And that God is calling us to obey. There's all these things in this. But believe it or not, I, I believe even beyond that, this is a parable of hope. And I say that because notice at the end of the parable, right, even in the, even in the response that the Pharisees have, the reality is that even though this has gone so badly with the first tenant, the landowner doesn't decide to sell the land. He doesn't decide to just kind of burn the vineyard to the ground and get rid of it. Instead, he's, he keeps the vineyard. He keeps the kingdom. He doesn't give up on his kingdom people in the world. He just says there's going to be a new group of tenants who will come in. And this time, the tenants will be led by, if you'll allow me to extend the analogy a little bit, will be led by the head farmer who is my son, who is Jesus himself. The one who will enable the new tenants, his church, to bear fruit in the way that they were originally supposed to. Because his presence will be with them, his spirit will be in them as the church. And so there's hope in this. And this is actually where we step into this parable as the church. It's somewhat open-ended, as some of the parables have been that Jesus tells, but that open-ended aspect of the parable invites us to engage as the modern-day church today. And I think this is where we're invited to see ourselves in the parable as the new tenants. And although the circumstances have changed a little bit, the work of the vineyard is still the same. It's a vineyard that is called to produce the fruit of the calling of God. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations, that same calling, that same work is given to the new tenants. I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. This is exactly what this is supposed to look like. So as new tenants of the vineyard then, the question becomes, how should we respond? What does it look like for us to tangibly respond to this invitation? For all of us who want to be faithful kingdom tenants, I want to give you three ways to respond this morning. And I can't overstate how important these three things are. So if you're writing things down, if you're taking notes, write these three things down. They're going to be on a slide behind me. And so maybe if you're not writing things down, maybe you get out your phone, take a picture of this, take a mental picture, whatever it is. However it is that you do your thing and however, whatever works for you, these are three things that we need to remember. The first one is this. Listen to God. The second one is listen to God. And the third one is, you guessed it, listen to God. Now, look, there are a lot of layers in this parable. But I think more than anything, the thing that I'm struck by, and especially if you know the Old Testament history, the thing that should strike you as you read this is remembering how many times in the Old Testament God comes to his people and says, listen, why are you not listening to me? I have told you this, and now I'm telling you again to listen. And I'm going to send my prophets, and they're going to tell you to listen for the second time, for the third time, for the fourth time, for the fifth, sixth. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Look, there are... Uh, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. That's over, and there's over 419,000 words in the Old Testament as well. And it seems like as you read through it, at least half of it is just made up of God telling his people to listen and then telling them again that you didn't listen the first time and you didn't listen the second time and you didn't listen the third time over and over and over again. And that's exactly what this parable is presenting to us. The landowner sends servants again and again and again, and then he sends his son, and they still don't listen. It's crazy when you stop and think about it. And look, the first week in this series, we talked about why Jesus taught in parables. The disciples asked him, why do you teach in parables? And he answered by presenting the difference between hearing and actually listening, which I think is important for us to consider. And he quotes from Isaiah, one of those prophets who was sent by God, one of those servants who were sent to the, to the vineyard, to the tenants. 
But he says this in Matthew chapter 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. You know what's even more amazing than how the Old Testament plays out that way, that cycle? I think it's the fact that we know this, right? I'm probably not telling you this for the first time. If you've read the Old Testament, it's pretty obvious what God is doing. And as you read this parable and we began to explain it a little bit, you probably were like, okay, it's easy to make those connections. I can see exactly what Jesus is saying here. So we know all those things. But I think one of the most amazing things is that we know that and we somehow think that we aren't just like them. That we're immune somehow to not listening to God. And you'll hear from time to time, I'll hear this from people from time to time, they'll say, you know what, I don't feel like God gives us enough evidence to understand who he is. And there's many times in my life where I'm trying to understand, you know, where God wants me to go, what God wants me to do, and I don't feel like he's speaking to me or directing me or giving me any kind of direction in my life. And I, I, I know he's got a purpose, but I don't understand what that purpose is and what that plan is. I don't feel like God tells me enough of what I need to know. And look, in reality, God doesn't tell us everything. Part of that is because there's faith in there, and we have to trust God with the reality that the things that he doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us for a reason. Sometimes he just calls, to tr calls us to trust him without giving us a full explanation. But look, I don't really believe that the breakdown in our communication is because God hasn't said enough to us. I believe that what happens when the breakdown in our communication happens, a problem exists is, is that we don't listen, is when we don't listen to what he has already said to us in his world. Because he's said plenty to us in his word. So, if you're with me on this, I want to give you a picture of what listening to God through his word looks like. And here are really three things that you might want to write down somewhere. The first one is this, hear the words. The second one is trust the words. And the third one is do the words. You know, a failure to listen to God faithfully usually breaks down in one of these three areas in our lives. I'm explaining to you why that is here in a minute, but just think about that for a minute. A failure to listen to God usually breaks down in one of these three areas in our lives. And by the way, these things are, are, are designed to be done like all the time. Constantly. It's not just a checklist that you check off and like, okay, I've done that, and it's time to move on to other things. This is something that is perpetually in motion for us, evaluating this idea. And so what I want you to do is as we talk about what it means to hear the words, trust the words, and do the words, just have a little conversation with God about this. It's about you and God just kind of talking this through. Where might there be a breakdown in this for you? And be as honest as you can about these things. First of all, hear the words. Now, if we're going to listen to God's word, it makes sense that, of course, we should hear it or we should read it first. And I think this is the place where listening to God starts. It's the simplest place, but it's also the part, I would say, where it breaks down for most people. Most people don't even hear or read God's word, for being honest, on a regular basis. And as Christians, like most of us know that reading God's word is essential. We've heard Jesus say things like, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes or proceeds from the mouth of God. But then things like Netflix also exist, right? And we may know that like the God of the universe is speaking to us in his word. Like this is the very God of the universe and he wants to meet with you and he's given you his word so that he can talk with you and you can talk with him. And yet things like Netflix exist and it's like, man, did you see how awesome that Netflix series is? And yeah, I know it's important to read God's word, but I just didn't have time yesterday. But last night, man, I hit like six of those episodes of that Netflix series. <laughs> they tell you how awesome that was. And then things like, you know, Kevin Durant possibly getting traded to the Suns exists, and it just consumes my attention as I, can try to as I try to find every single podcast and article that's possibly written on that on the internet. But that's the thing, right? That's how this works. We understand on one level, like, this is the God of the universe who is, wants to speak to us. He wants to sit and spend time with us. He wants you to know him. He wants, to, he, you know, he wants you to know how much he loves you. 
He's given you the secrets of the universe in his word. And we're just like, ah, but really? That Netflix show, though. And look, so much of our life is made up of choices. God has given us the ability to choose, but that doesn't mean the choices that we always make are God's choices for us. The most important thing you can do for yourself and really every, every person in your life, right? the thing you can do for yourself and really everyone who is around you is to read God's word, is to choose to read God's word. It's as simple and it's sometimes as difficult as that. But we make the choice to spend more time with God. So choose now. Choose tomorrow morning when you wake up to spend time with God. Choose Tuesday morning. Choose Wednesday morning. And keep choosing, even though it's the thing that sometimes feels like you don't want to do, keep choosing it until it's the thing that you actually really do want to do. Because you see the power in it. You see the blessing in it. This is truly the God who loves me, who wants to spend time with me in his word. Which brings us to the second one, trust the words. You know, once we've read or we've heard the words, we need to be able to trust what we've read. You know, we often use the words hearing and listening kind of interchangeably. But in the Bible, there's, of course, a difference between that. We just saw that earlier when Jesus talked about the parables. There's a difference between hearing and actually listening. Hearing without listening sometimes happens when we read God's word, but it actually doesn't become anything more than just like words on a page to us. We've got a plan to read through the Bible, and I'm I'm more committed to my plan and getting this done than I am actually spending time listening and hearing the words and allowing the words to really speak to me that I'm reading. Or it's a checklist that I check off at the end of the day, or even it's just, for some of us, an exercise in learning new things. I know I fall into this trap sometimes. I love to learn things from the Bible, whether it's theology or history or whatever it may be or just so that I can teach the Bible a little bit better. And I realize that at the end of it, although that's great, that is a reason to read the Bible, I've totally missed my time with God in reading his word. Because it's been just about kind of me learning new things. Which again isn't bad, but it's not really the point, right? The point of meeting with God in his words is that we've actually met with God through his words. That these words to us actually become God's voice to us. And We need to sit and we need to soak. We need to do whatever it takes. If you've got a journal, if you've got to spend a little extra time just rereading what you just read, keep reading it and keep staying there until you actually hear God's voice behind the words that you were reading. Because we haven't really read God's word until we've met with God there in that place. We have a perfect example of what this looks like. The Pharisees knew God's word better than anybody on the face of the planet outside Jesus himself. They, in order to be a Pharisee or religious leader at the time, you had to memorize the entire Old Testament. They knew the entire thing. They taught it. They read it day in. They studied it day in and day, ni- day, in and, uh, day and night. All the time. That was what they did. And yet somehow when it gets to this place, they completely miss the heart of God. Because their problem wasn't that they didn't know what God's word said. It was that they weren't listening to what God's word actually had to say to them. They didn't meet with God. Their hearts didn't meet with the heart of God through his words. I sometimes think about it this way. like The people we love in our lives, the people we trust, have a capacity to be able to speak words into our lives that really matter and impact us, Right? In other words, like somebody I know that loves me or respects me or that spends a lot of time with me or or sees my life, like my wife, for example, she has a lot more authority to speak into my life than a stranger would, for example, because that person doesn't know me as well. And, And maybe, you know, my wife does because we have a love relationship. I know when she's saying things to me, for the most part, she's saying it out of love to me, right? Whether it's encouraging me or whether it's challenging me in some way to grow and to change, it comes from a place where she cares about me and she loves me. The same thing happens with God's word. If we understand, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, which doesn't mean like obey my commandments so that I will love you. It actually means Jesus saying, look, if you love me, if you trust me, then you will trust what I have to say to you as well. You will love what I have to say to you because you know it's for your good. And sometimes when we read God's word, it feels like a stranger is speaking to us. We need to press in until it feels like our heavenly father is speaking to us out of his love for us. And then finally, we hear the words, we trust the words, we do the words. 
James 1.22 says very clearly, do not merely be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves, but be doers of the word. Do what it says. Look, one of the implications of these words being the very words of the God of the universe is that it demands a response when we engage with it. This whole parable, of course, turns on the aspect of fruit or the lack of fruit being produced. And fruit by nature is something that is visible on a tree, of course, or on a bush. And you don't need to be a farmer or a horticulturalist to know that a, tree that, a fruit tree that's not producing fruit or a fruit tree that's producing kind of shriveled small fruit is a tree that is somehow not healthy in and of itself, right? In some ways, it's an indicator of the fact that that tree is struggling. It's not getting enough water. It's not getting enough fertilizer. It's struggling in the heat, whatever it may be. But it's not as healthy as it should be. Maybe it has a disease. And that's why the Bible consistently uses this idea of fruit being presented in our lives. Because fruit, what we do with what we know and what we do with our relationship with God, and what we do as we follow the Spirit is an indicator of the health of what's going on inside of us. It's an indicator of our spiritual health. And so the reality is, is God's Word is living and active. It means to transform us and to change us. And meeting in the presence of God with His Word is designed to change us. Sometimes that changes us in large ways. Sometimes it changes us in small ways. But if we're being transformed, we should be being more and more transformed into the image of Christ. And so in all of this, we're to listen to God's words. In in order to listen to God's word, we need to hear God's word. We need to trust God's words, and we need to do the words. You know, next week is our kickoff Sunday. And as a part of that kickoff Sunday celebration, we're going to be talking about vision here at North. Uh, I have a message that I'm going to present about, you know, where we feel like we're going today as a church. And uh, then we're going to talk about the next series that's coming up, which will coincide with that vision. Something I'm really excited about. In fact, I was so excited about this week that I started working on that message so much that I had to, like, stop myself so that I could work on this message for this Sunday. So I'd actually have something to present this Sunday. Some of you are like, yeah, I can tell. Um, but I'm excited for next week. Like, I can't wait. There's a lot of exciting things, right? There's the picnic. There's all those things that are going on. But beyond that, there's a lot of things that we have to present to you, things that we have been thinking about and praying about and listening to God about for the past several months, whether it's our staff or our elders, and we've been having these conversations. And I feel like that, ma- that, that message next week is going to present some of those things that I hope will be encouraging and exciting. But I want to say this also. A vision from a pastor is not what changes a church. A vision communicated, a vision message on a Sunday morning communicated from a church leader is not what gives life to a church. You know what changes a church? Not a leader with a great vision. I mean, it's better than a leader with a bad vision, but still, it's not what changes a church. What changes a church is a church full of people who love God enough to listen to God. And that's what I want to say to us today. Like, uh, The reality is that a church that can listen to God together is much more powerful than a church who has every program, every vision in line, every staff member they need, the budget to do everything that they want. Those things are great, but at the same time, a church that really, truly listens to God eats those programs, those budgets, those visions for breakfast. And if I can ask, can I ask one thing of you this week? I don't ask a lot from you, right? Can I just ask one thing? If you're a part of North Bible Church, we're going to be a people who are committed to listening to God. And I want to invite you, each and every one of you, to start that this week. That this week, no matter where you're at, in that list of like, okay, hearing, how well am I hearing, how well am I listening, how well am I doing the word, revisit that. And ask yourself, where might this be breaking down for me? Maybe for some of you, it's just, I need to just start reading God's Word. Well, look, silence your phone. If you need to, take a break from that Netflix series if you need to make more room in your life to do that. Wake up 30 minutes earlier than you normally do. Take a shorter shower. I mean, not too short, but, you know, whatever it takes. Find some time to do this because, look... I never buy the excuse, I'm too busy to read God's word. (laughs) I'm too busy to spend time with God. None of us are too busy for that. 
What we're really saying, let's just be honest. Can we be honest? Because we've got to be honest in order to fix the problem, and this is the problem. What we're saying is that I don't prioritize time with God enough to make more room for it in my life. That's what we're saying. That's the reality. And if that's you, then that's fine. At least you're being honest, and at least you know where to change. But I would invite you to change that. Figure out how that needs to change this week. And look, don't take this as an obligation because obligation says, I have to do this. An obligation becomes a burden. I want you instead to see this as an opportunity because opportunity says instead of, I have to do this, I get to do this. I get to spend time with the God who has created the universe. I get to spend time with the God who has loved me and who has created me the way that he has on purpose because he loves me. I get to spend time with the God who has saved me because he loved me. I get to spend time with the God who is my father, the God who speaks to me faithfully in wisdom. Can you do that? For some of you, I know you're doing it already. For others of us, there may be a place where we look at and say, you know what? It's time to fix this, right? It's time to embrace this this call because this parable, as much as it is, of course, a hopeful parable, it is also a warning and a challenge to us of how how easily it can come to us to ignore the voice of God and to not listen when he comes to us. And so I want to invite you to do that this week. If it's not happening for you, press on until it happens. Make a decision to spend time with God. Choose now. Choose tomorrow. Choose Tuesday. Choose Wednesday. Every single day of this week. And look, I think if we're a church who becomes just the people in this room, and those of you who are watching, a church who truly listens to God, that's a church that can change the world. And I'm not being hyperbolic about that. That's God's design for what the church is supposed to be. A church who listens to God is a church who changes the world and changes people's lives for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do want to listen to you. And we know, uh, we know how easy it is in the world that we live in to be distracted in a myriad of different ways. And so, Lord, I would ask that you would help us to work through what we've talked about here this morning. Where is that breakdown existing? Are we, are we not hearing you as much as we should? Um, are the words that we're hearing not really getting deep into our hearts because they've just become words of a stranger, for lack of a better term? Are they really the words of our Father who loves us? And so help us, Spirit, to hear your voice behind the words that we read, that they, they aren't just words on a, on a page, that they're not just text, but they become truly the word of God that is living and active in our hearts. And Lord, we ask for the faith to act on your words, to do what you've called us to do, to be a church that is the blessing, a blessing to the world in the way that you've called us to to be people who are transformed even more and more into the image of Christ. To people who believe more and more of the good news of Jesus. And Lord, uh, we ask that you would help us to live out what Jesus said. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And for a lot of us, Lord, we have trust issues with you if we're honest but we need your spirit to work on our hearts so that we can trust you more than we do today. And the next day, we can trust you a little bit more than we did that day, and so on and so forth. Lord, help us to listen to you. We need your spirit to do the work in us, and we ask that he would, that we'd be yielded, Father, we'd be attentive, and we would see this above all as an opportunity something we get to do rather than an obligation, something we have to do. The God of the universe wants to speak with us, wants to meet with us. Lord, help us to see that nothing can be more important than that. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. 
North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Quickly, I just want to remind us of a couple of things. First of all, next week is our kickoff Sunday. Again, we're going to have an indoor picnic afterwards. We're going to provide food for you. So please be here. We're excited to see everybody here as we bring everything back and we kind of get started into a new year of sorts. We operate both on a calendar new year, but also on like the school new year because that's when everything starts back up here at North. And so it's a big Sunday for us. And then again, in two weeks, we are switching to our new schedule. We're going to have a 9 o'clock discipleship hour from 9 to 10, and then 10.30 worship service. Okay, that'll be on August 14th, two weeks from today. Next week, 10 a.m.? The following week, what time? Worship service? 10.30. I'm sorry, I set you up to say 9 o'clock and 10.30 at the same time. Worship service at 10.30. I think we understand that. But again, I want to I just reiterate what Brent talked about earlier, about that 9 o'clock class. If you are a parent of teenagers, please consider attending that class. It's a class on... Uh, faith and sexuality, specifically aimed at parents of teenagers and leaders of teenagers. It's going to hit on all kinds of issues, hot-button issues that our teenagers are facing right now regarding sexuality, gender identity, LGBT issues, uh, pornography and the internet, I, I, I stuff, right? In other words, like more kind of uh, technology-driven type things that are influences on our kids. And so it's a 13-week course that we believe is going to help equip you as parents as we partner with you to help raise your kids and navigate. Like, when I was a kid, I didn't face half the stuff my teenagers are facing right now regarding sexuality. I'm sure you feel the same way as you are trying to raise your kids if you have teenagers or kids who are coming up through teenage years. And so we need to be equipped, we need to be informed, and we need to help support one another. That's what this class is all about. We want to come alongside you as parents to help equip you in that. So please consider attending that class 9 o'clock on the 14th. Wes and Kristen Buchanan are leading it along with another couple. They're going to be fantastic at helping facilitate that. And so we hope that you will be a part of that. Make plans to be a part of it at 9 o'clock. Also, if you need prayer, we have our prayer partners. Um, the Custers are our prayer partners. And so if you want to uh, talk to them and pray with them afterwards, they're ready to receive you over there. We also have prayer request cards that are located on the table with the cross on it. If you want to request prayer for you, we pray over those prayer request cards and those requests every week. Staff, prayer team, and elders, drop it in the offering stand as you leave here this morning, and we'll make sure that gets to the right place. If you're visiting with us, don't forget to stop by guest services and I think that's all we have to say. Have a great week, and we'll see you again next week, kickoff Sunday. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.